we developed this um, course and it was actually aimed at women to start with but after a while we discovered really emotional crisis is not just a girl thing are there any guys out there that have emotional meltdowns every now and again <laughs> only the wives put up the hands and pointed <laughs> oh just cliff <laughs> cliff and charles Oh, we're in a good hands here, aren't we? Okay, so anyway, um, this course actually looking at emotional brokenness particularly and um, healing and how people work through healing. So I really do encourage you to have a look at that. There will be lecture time and there will be group discussion time and opportunity for prayer um, and it has always proven to be very useful. So I do encourage you to have a look at that and register in the box outside if you will. Okay, this morning's topic is called Organising Jesus. Write that down. <laughs> now, as we come into this season of prayer and fasting that uh, we've been talking about, um, I just want to follow on from what Nick said last week. Uh, now, I want you to pay close attention to this. This season of prayer and fasting is not about us sorting God out and getting him back on task. Because sometimes I think that's what we think we're going to do. We're going to sort God out and get him back on track. Because somehow or another, God isn't cooperating with where we want to go. Has anybody ever... No, I know. Nobody's like that. It's just me. But organising Jesus is not a new concept. And so this morning, I want to read a scripture for you from John 6, verses 14 to 16. It'll come up on the screen. Now, this scripture came um, just shortly after... I mean, this this piece was just shortly after Jesus had done the miracle with the 5,000 people where he had fed the 5,000 people so let's just read what it says here it says after the people saw the sign that's the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus performed they began to say surely this is the prophet who has come into the world now Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now I'd read that scripture probably a million times, which is an exaggeration, but I'd read that scripture many times and I had never seen those words before. They intended to come and make him king by force. I thought, oh, that's very interesting. They intended to make him king by force. The crowd had seen the miracle. They'd seen Jesus round about. They'd heard the things that he'd been saying. And the proof was in the pudding, as it were. They knew about the prophesied Messiah, you know, the prophesied Saviour. And they had an agenda. They all had an agenda. Their agenda was to get rid of the Romans. Those pesky Roman colonist settlers who'd come in yes they'd brought a bit of civilization with them but they'd come in and they were causing all sorts of drama amongst the Jewish people uh, in Palestine so they'd seen it and they said to themselves let's make him king by force now let's look at Palestine at that time and uh, the groups of people that were there I read up a little bit on it and there were four main group, groups, apart from the Romans, who were the pesky uh, oppressors, there were four main Jewish groups. There was the Pharisees, which you've heard of. There were the Sadducees, which you've heard of, I assume. And there was the Essenes, which I've never heard of, and I still didn't read up on them. And then the fourth group of Jews were the Zealots. You perhaps have heard of them. Have you heard of them? 
did you watch the movie Risen? I've got an image from the movie Risen there, and that's the, one of the Roman uh, people fighting off the zealots there. The zealots, it says here, were members of a first century political movement among Judean Jews who sought to overthrow the occupying Roman government. They had a reputation as forceful and aggressive agitators. These were the zealots. It does show in history, according to Josephus the historian, that they eventually were the ones who caused the uprising in Jerusalem against the Romans, and the Romans came in and sacked them completely and destroyed them all, and Rome at that point in 70 AD was destroyed. Now that was, um, you know, 70 years after Christ, but the zealots were around in Jesus' time. We know that because one of his disciples was a zealot, Simon the Zealot. So the zealots were around and they were a group of political people who did not like Rome. In fact, I don't think many of the Jews liked Rome. They'd come in and they had taken over their country uh, and they had brought in their own um, system and they were oppressive. They were a bit cruel, you know, if you didn't get on with them, they'd, you know, hang you on a cross. Because it wasn't just Jesus that got hung on a cross, it was, that was a regular occurrence. Uh, they would hang people on crosses with nails and things and they were not terribly popular. So, of course, all the Jews knew that there was going to be a Messiah. It was prophesied. They talked about it. They hoped for it. They longed for it. So when Jesus turned up and started doing the things that he was doing, of course, the Jews began to believe. They actually began to believe. It wasn't wrong that they were going to believe. They believed because they saw the miracles. But what they did was, good, he's here. Right, now let's get him organised. Because what we need is we need to get rid of these Romans. So they had a plan. They would put him in as king to put him in charge. He could do his thing and they'd get rid of the Romans, right? But it says here in the scripture, if you have a look, Jesus, was, Jesus knew that they intended to make him king by force. And so what did he do? He does what he does to me all the time. He withdrew and hid. You see, in that time, what they didn't understand when they were making this plan about making him king was that he already was the king of all kings. He already was the king. He knew that the job he'd been sent to do by the father had nothing to do with the Romans. Because if he had just dealt with the Romans, if he'd let them put them at the front of the charge and they had dealt with the Romans, what would have happened a bit later when we had the barbarians rise up? Or then we had the, the, the Nordic invaders? Or we had the Saxon invaders? Or the Norman invaders? Or we had the slave traders? Or we had, you know, um, we had the Nazis? We had EDR men? What would he have done? What about the Khmer Rouge? And, and uh, you know, what was the guy's name? Joseph Coney and all the other atrocious unjust oppressors over the centuries that have come if he'd just come to deal with the Romans what about the rest of us and the rest of history because you know what Jesus did not come to establish a throne in Jerusalem or a throne in Rome or a throne in London or a throne anywhere else Jesus came to establish a throne in your heart and in my heart he came to establish his kingdom but the kingdom was not in the world the kingdom was in us because when Jesus becomes throned, enthroned in our heart and he is the king of all kings, it goes across the ages and it goes forever and ever. And that's what Jesus was about. 
Let's have a look at another scripture, John 7. Just let's read it here. And this was shortly after the one before. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. One lot wanted to make him king, the other lot wanted to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of the tabernacle was near, which is a big feast celebration time, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers didn't believe in him. I found that scripture quite alarming, actually, <laughs> on two counts. First of all, the, the brothers uh, were mocking him and didn't believe in him. But secondly, it's because I see that attitude around about today. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing th these things, show yourself to the world. It's like, let's make a circus, Jesus. Let's make a circus. I tell you what we'll do. We'll organise you. We'll... Uh, You've got the power and the authority, so we'll do an advertising campaign. We'll sort out an itinerary. Let's work out a program. And all Jesus has to do is turn up and do his thing. Simples. But in both cases, Jesus' plans didn't look like the plans that the crowds had in mind or the plans that his brothers had in mind. It was just different. Jesus had something else in mind. Have you ever heard of the slogan, make God famous or making God famous? Everybody's extremely quiet today, Charles. <laughs> it's a little bit disconcerting. You know, I hate to waltz out onto a limb on my own. I like to think that other people are coming out with me. <laughs> anybody? <laughs> Has anybody ever heard of the phrase, making God famous? Oh, you know, uh, sometimes we make up slogans like that. But you know, with Jesus, it's not about a billboard. It's not about being in the top 100 with Jesus. He's not actually interested in that, as he showed with his brothers. When it comes to making, people f making God famous, it's more about what you would find when you and me and all of us here and all of us in all the churches across Melbourne and across Australia and across the world are in that place where the people are broken, where the people are hurting, where the people are hungry, where the people are lonely, where they are strangers. It's when you are there one-on-one -on -one with that person, connecting them with the love of God, with the hope of God, with the spirit of God, that God is establishing their throne, his throne in their hearts that is what is making God famous. Once we just rely upon billboards and massive uh, advertising campaigns, I think we've missed the plot because it's not, that's not where God, I, I'm not, I shouldn't say that's not, you can't use an advertising campaign and you can't use a flyer and you can't, I shouldn't say that. I'm not actually saying that. I'm just saying it's not that. That's not where the kingdom of God is. It's not a political movement. It's not an aggressive advertising campaign this is a, a, a heart movement where the kingdom of God is established heart by heart across the ages across the world across the class divisions across the broad spectrum 
Jesus is being established in the hearts of people. And you're a part of that with your neighbour, with your family, in your work environment, as much as I am. And uh, this is the, the, the flavour of the message this morning. But you know, sometimes I just want to talk a little bit about as we're coming into the season of uh, prayer and fasting, how this all works with the whole prayer and fasting thing. Because you know, I have a good imagination and I like to figure things out. I just want to tell you a little story which you, uh, about why I became a writer or how I became a writer. For those of you who don't know, I am a writer. Uh, I have um, oh, about 18 books published. And if, <laughs> Look at that, Gavin and Chelsea. I didn't realise that you'd be there on the top of that. Do you see the first book there in the thing with the man with the hat? That's, that's Gavin and Chelsea sitting down here. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I just want to tell you a little story about how I got into that. And it is relevant, trust me. I didn't, know that I, I didn't know that I could write. A lot of people said to me, did you always want to be a writer? Did you go and study writing? I said, no, I had no clue. I didn't ever even think about it. What I did used to do though, but I didn't know that I did. Uh, Pastor Nick and I have been in Christian ministry since we were first married, well, me, both of us before we were married. Um, you know, a good 35, 36 years. Um, when I was uh, early married, I used to do a lot of housework. Don't do so much now. You know. Oh, no. <laughs> I used to do a lot of housework, and those of you who do do housework know that you can be busy doing something like ironing, and your mind is completely uh, free for other things, other more, more important things. Now, when we, were first, when we were in pastoral ministry, then, now, whenever, uh, when you're in pastoral ministry, you're always coming across a crisis in somebody's life. Uh, you, you might find that hard to believe, but there's always somebody in crisis, um, some kind of drama going on. And so I used to hear about this, you know, in being within the pastoral realm. So one day I was doing my ironing and I was ironing away and I was doing what I had always done but never realised I did it. What I would do is I would take the crisis at there in hand, the people that were in, tr in trouble or in drama, and I would begin to uh, work their life out for them. I would, um, I would take them, you know, create another plot point where they, where they get into more trouble um, and then more trouble again. And then I would begin to steer them back around and then I'd bring them through here and, and this would happen, that would happen. And there'd, there'd be massive victory and then, you know, hallelujah, it'd all turn out all right. Happily ever after. Amen. Uh, I would even have dialogue, you know, when I was doing this. One day I was ironing away and I had done this with a, uh, a couple who were in crisis and drama. I finished the ironing and I thought, oh, good heavens, look what I've done to these poor people. I'd taken them on a fair old tour, I tell you what. Lots and lots of trouble and, um, and, and worked it all out for them. And when I finished ironing, I, I realised nothing had actually ever changed. Uh, it was just my imagination had gone on a, a cycle. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, if I can do that with real people, I could probably make up some, uh, you know, fictional characters and do the same with them. Ooh, that sounded like an exciting thing to do. And that's how I started to write. Got myself an exercise book because I didn't have a computer, didn't even know how to use one. And I just wrote, just wrote madly, um, making up all sorts of drama and crisis and trouble. The more trouble there is, the better the book. The harder it is to get them out of trouble, of course, afterwards. But, you know, it's always fun. 
That's how I became a writer. Now, I tell you that because I wonder, do you do that to people in your family? There's a crisis or a drama and you've all of a sudden, maybe you're not, maybe you don't put the dialogue in that I do and other things, but maybe you you figure out how they're going to get better. Make a plan? Does anybody make a plan? Maybe you should go into writing fiction. (laughs) Because it is fiction, people. Now that I'm a writer, I get to control the world. It's so much fun. Um, As a writer, I can create the scene and I can control everybody. Do you know how much fun that is? That's why we become writers, because it is fun to control people and to organise them and to set them on the right path and to bring them through into victory and glory and romantic finishes and sunsets and happy ever after. It's wonderful. But you know what? That's fiction, people. I probably still do that to real people too in life. And when I'm finished with my version of how it's going to go, I present it to God and he doesn't seem to be anywhere about. (laughs) Where's he gone? It's like, you know, he knows I'm going to make him king by force and he's cleared off. (laughs) I think, that's not fair. He doesn't cooperate at all. So where is he? It says in the Bible he's gone to the mountain and he's probably praying, praying for me uh, about, first of all. So, fiction is fiction. Reality is reality. And here we're going into a season of prayer and fasting. And we're going to write down on our little card uh, all of our uh, things that we are are believing for, right? I've already filled my card in. There's hardly room, hardly room to deal with what I was going to deal with and sort God out on. (laughs) You know, my extended family, not including Nick's, my extended family, if we all got together at once, there would be 40 of us. And let me tell you, amongst the 40 of us, uh, there's enough crisis and drama to write a daytime soap, (laughs) which I've been considering, but... (laughs) And sometimes I have ideas about how I'm going to sort this one out, or how I'm going to sort that one out, or how that one, if only they would do this, 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 and this, and then we could do that, and then they would do go there then he would say that this would happen that would happen and it would all end up satisfactorily right and you know what God doesn't seem to be interested in my formats I find it very discouraging anyway let's look at another uh, scripture because we are coming up to a season of prayer and fasting and we've got to figure out how this is going to go (laughs) don't know if I'm going to like it Matthew 6 verses 5 to 8 and when you pray do not be like the hypocrites For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. All right, let's let's pull that scripture apart a little bit here because we're going into the season of prayer and fasting. We already know that we're not allowed to make it up. Sometimes I worry that in the past I may have used prayer as a spiritual exercise a little bit like the spiritists use voodoo. That sounds a bit scary, doesn't it? 
so that God can do what I want him to do. And I already told you about my, my fiction, what, the scripts that I write in my head. But it's more than that. It might even, even sound, when you're looking at this, when it says, when you pray, do not stand in the, and, uh, like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. It might be sounding like as if I'm saying to you, don't worry about turning up to the prayer meeting. Charles, have we got a tissue down there? I feel that a tissue is needed. After somebody sources one for me, I'll stop sniffing. That'll be great. Um, I'm not saying about that. What I am saying is that when people, when you come into public, to your public prayer meetings, you can perform. We can perform. I can perform really spiritually because I'm good like that. And you can think, how spiritual is she? because of the way that I pray in front of you. And it says here in the Bible, truly, you've had your reward in full. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. You see? That's a mother. She's got it in a handbag, you see? Thank you. Praying is not about public performance. Now, I'm not saying... Well, I'm, it does sound like I'm saying... It's not about what people see you do. It's about what you've done at home already. When you've been at home in your private prayer place and you've been opening your heart to God and you've been seeking him and you've been communing with him and then you come to the public place, it's about us uh, opening our hearts to God together in faith, in unity. It's not necessarily about performance. You see... Uh, there are times, uh, the second part of the scripture there says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Now, um, babbling like pagans, sometimes people might think the Pentecostals are like that. Uh, I've been in Pentecostal church for over 35 years. Who else has been a Pentecostal for many, many years? And uh, I've seen some funny stuff. When I first joined a Pentecostal church, I was very young, and our church was a tiny, weeny little country town. And in a little country town, people in country towns tend to know what everybody else is doing. Um, and when we started this church, which wasn't the Methodist church, and it wasn't the Lutheran church, and it wasn't the Catholic church, it was very suspicious to people. But they seemed to know what was going on, and the word that went around the community was that we used to swing from chandeliers. Well, you know what? We didn't have chandeliers. But if we did have, it's just as likely that we probably would have swung from them. <laughs> a lot of crazy stuff went on in, in Pentecostal movements. And, you know, look, I, I don't criticise because I've done a lot of funny stuff. A lot of funny stuff. Has anybody done any funny stuff? Not of one. Um, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do funny stuff. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, I do want to have a look at the priests of Baal, however. The, you you realise when Jesus was talking to them, do not babble on like the pagans do, that he was talking to a group of people who actually knew how the pagans worshipped. And the pagans, uh, you know, as illustrated in uh, Elijah's time, when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal, who were pagans, um, you know, to, 
to call upon their God, uh, the priests of Baal, it says there, appealed to their God in rites of wild abandon, which included loud, ecstatic cries and self-inflicted injury. Now, uh, uh, and they didn't get anywhere. Um, Now, the only self-inflicted injury we might have done is we might have pulled a muscle when we were trying to do that dancing back in the day. (laughs) Um, You see, it's not about the performance. It's not about how hard you you act uh, or perform. It's about the heart. Do you remember back in the day, those of you who have been in the Pentecostal church for any length of time, um, you would have heard... Uh, preachers, when they preach or when they pray, they use a certain um, tone of authority. Like uh, if they're going to pray for somebody, they'll go, in Jesus' name. Um, Because that has more authority than if I just said in Jesus' name. Apparently. Or they add a certain amount of hallelujahs on the end. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now, now, don't get me wrong, hallelujah is a good word. It means, you know, great and glorious praise to our Father, to, to God. It's a great word. But it's not a magic word. It's not like you're doing an incantation by using the word hallelujah. Hallelujah is a word that you say it because you mean it. Because you mean great and glorious praise to our God. Do you understand what I'm saying? And uh, I've been to prayer meetings before where, and I still do it, um, when I'm praying I go, oh, you know, thank you God, thank you, and I march up and down, and I march up and down this way again. Has anybody marched when they pray? Does anybody march? Yeah, yeah, I do too. Even when I'm home I still march. (laughs) I don't know, I just feel active. (laughs) But you know, God can still hear you if you're not marching. (laughs) But I'll march anyway because I like marching. (laughs) It's okay to march, but it's not about the marching. Because, you know, God will hear you just as well if you kneel at the altar and light a candle with an open heart, as if you're marching, as if you're waving your hands, as if you are speaking in a loud voice. Because, you know, God can hear you better if you shout. (laughs) And if you stand up, because you're taller. You know what? God hears your heart. Because your heart is inclined to him. And whether you shout, because I'm not saying that shouting is wrong. And whether you march, because I'm not saying marching is wrong. Or whether you light a candle, because actually there's nothing wrong with lighting a candle. It's whether your heart is inclined to him. It's not about the performance that you do in prayer. It's about the attitude of your heart inclined towards him. That when we come together, and I do encourage you to come to the corporate prayer meetings that are listed I think it's not that uh, Wednesday the 8th is the first one here. It's because we bring our hearts together in unity before our Father, in faith together. And whether you sit quietly and incline your heart towards him or whether you gallop around the room at full tilt, it's about the heart that you prepared before you got here, yeah? Thank you. Just the last um, scripture that I've, I've got there. But they soon forgot what he had done 
this is his son, and they did not wait for his plan to unfold. Sometimes it's about waiting, and I have got another scripture there, but I'll get you to read that one at home, Isaiah 58, what do you do while you wait? It's the usual, you know, reach out to the poor and the oppressed. Um, I do go on about that, but I might just add it again today. You know, it's about reaching out to the poor and the oppressed and, uh, you know, seeing God's work done. But um, we need to pray for the bottom line. And the bottom line is salvation, it's healing, it's restoration, it's reconciliation, it's deliverance. How is that going to work in the lives of the people that I I would like to pray for? Well, I could show you the scripts that I've already written, but I doubt that that's what Jesus will do because he has his own plan. I do want to tell you one story. Um, About 15 years ago, um, Nick and I had planted a campus for one of the larger churches in Adelaide in the city. And um, we didn't have a permanent place to meet. And we were roaming around from school to school and place to place because we kept getting kicked out of places because we kept doing strange things like the sh- swinging on the chandeliers. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> it just happened like that. Okay, so we were looking for a permanent place and a place came up right in the city. It was a beautiful big hall. Um, and we went there with the, the assistant pastors who were helping us at this plant. And while we were there looking at this place, I, don't, I can't remember which one of us, but one of us said, we should, we should march around this place seven times and claim it for the Lord. I said, you'd better be careful, it might fall down. <laughs> anyway, we couldn't march around it because it was actually on a block. So we decided we'd go around the block. And I can't quite remember whether we actually went around seven times or we just went around once, but whatever. Um, and we didn't march because it was too far and we were too lazy. But we went in a car around the block. <laughs> it was a big block. And we were claiming this building for the Lord, right? Drive, drive, drive. Claiming the building for the Lord. You know, you do these things. You do these crazy things. And guess what? We didn't get the building. (laughs) You might say, well, what did you tell me that story for? Well, let's fast forward 10 years. We were with another church at this point, 10 years later. We'd gone to repurpose a small church. Uh, They'd had about 50 people in a tiny little church building and before long we didn't fit and we were once again going from school hall to school hall and you know setting up you know the drill we've done that before and so we were looking for a building and blow me down if that very same building that we'd marched around before didn't come up available again hmm I said to Nick do you remember we we drive around this thing seven times and he remembered Anyway, so we went in and had a look. And what had happened in the 10 years since we'd been there, since we'd been marched around it, another church had moved in and had renovated it, put in Sunday school rooms, a cafe, and, um, you know, all the things that you, you generally need for a church, a sound desk, the whole, the whole thing. And this time we got it. And when we were in there, maybe a few months, the two people who'd been the pastor's from the other church had been in Queensland they came back to Adelaide and came and joined us again and walked in and I said do you remember when we drove around this place seven times and claimed it and I said but it was like there was this 10-year gap when God needed another church to go in and renovate it for us you know (laughs) you see at the time we marched around it it didn't fall down thankfully Uh, we marched around it and we claimed it for the Lord like he'd told us to do but it didn't happen the way we thought it was going to happen 
It happened 10 years later. So who knows? Who knows what God's got for you? So what do you do? Um, when you turn your heart towards God in your private meditations, don't tell him what he needs to do for you. I mean, you can mention it, and he might give a nice little chuckle and say, that's all right, I've got it all sorted. <laughs> what you need to do is you need to listen to him so he can tell you what you need to do. And what you need to do might be just end up waiting. Who's good at that? I just write novels because you can control the world then. Um, It might end up being that you shout aloud with a voice of triumph. Like, you know, after all of what I've said, there isn't anything wrong with shouting aloud with a voice of triumph so long as it's what God has told you to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? It might end up uh, speaking in tongues for half an hour which not everybody here is baptised in the Holy Spirit, but those of you that are, you know that sometimes that is what God wants you to do. Do it. Don't sit and, and question it. But in the end, it might just end up waiting and trusting. And trusting is the hard part. Trusting is the hard part. But that is what I think this season of prayer and fasting is about. It's not about sorting God out and getting him back on task. It's about him sorting us out so that we can, we can actually just sense where he's going and we can be listening and be ready to be obedient at the right time. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to ask um, Jackie and the musicians to come up and they're going to sing a song for you, uh, which when I listened to it, I thought, that's exactly what I want to say in this song. And um, when they're singing it, the words will come up. Dale's going to put them up for me, aren't you, Dale? When the words come up, what I want you to do is I want you to follow the words intently and, and if you will, if they ring a chord in your heart, I want you to use it as a prayer, like pray it as, um, as Jackie and the team are singing. Every single dream I lay each one down at your feet Every moment of my wondering Never changes what you see I've tried to win this war, I confess My hands are weary, I need Day ahead, you have not seen. 
in a minute because I think it'd be good for you to do it. But look, uh, this morning, is there anybody here who has been pacing up and down, shouting, writing scripts, doing the whole circus because there's things that you want to see changed in the lives of those in your family, your friends, somebody around about? Is there anybody here, even in your own life? You know what? This morning, let's do this. Let's stand again. Because it says at the end of that other scripture, it says, for your Father in heaven knows what you need. So this whole exercise is not about sorting God out. It's about us aligning our heart with Him. It's about us believing in Him and opening our heart to Him and saying, God, I will trust in you. You didn't part the waters like I thought you were going to. You didn't move the mountain that I needed you to move. But I will trust. I will trust in you. And you know, only a couple of people put up their hands, but I know that that there's more of you. That in your heart, sometimes, you know, you get frustrated with things and you want to sort God out. You want to organise Him. Me too. I do too. Let me be real. I do too. But I think this season of prayer and fasting is about him sorting us out. So how about we do that? And Jackie, I don't know, they didn't practice this, but we're going to do it. We're going to sing the bridge. No, we're going to sing the chorus of the bridge and we're going to sing the chorus again, okay? When you don't move the mind. 